You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, welcome to the Get Fucking Real show. I am Lisa Cherney, and I have a question for you. If you were driving down the road and you saw a car in front of you lose control and go off the side of the road into a murky swamp upside down and begin to sink into the water, would you risk your life to help the driver? Well, Jerry did, and Jerry's not our guest. Jerry is the man, the stranger who jumped out of his car and saved our today's guest, Justin Womack. And the story of this experience that he had and the aftermath and all the lessons learned, it just is illuminating for me. And I got chills hearing the story and the details. And I just, whenever one of our guests talks about surviving something that could have easily killed them, having a near-death experience of some sort, I, I always think, I always wonder, like, what is it like now? Like, what is it like now to know that you were given the second chance? And I try to live like that. You know, I try to remind myself when stupid things are annoying me that, you know, life is short and I'm here and to like be appreciative and grateful doesn't always work. I think it probably works a bit better for some of our guests who have been there. Um, you know, this is, he, he was in a medically induced coma. I'm, I'm proud to say he's not our first coma patient guest. Um, it's just, it's really amazing. The GFR wormhole stories that we get to share and we get to celebrate the, the after story, the after picture and see all of how it shaped the person along the way. Justin is no, um, exception to this. He is now a digital marketing specialist, copywriter, speaker, and he'll tell you how that was not, that's not an easily won title for him and the co-host of his own podcast called Marketing Geeks. He went from working sort of behind the scenes and even you know, having a, a corporate job to fast-tracking his own business after this harrowing experience of his um, car accident. And uh, it's just, it was a delight to, to really, you know, be with him in this story. And I mean, I got chills. It did um, just rebirth my, my uh, faith in humanity, hearing about this guy, Jerry, <laughs> who I like calling by his name because I just feel like, wow, um, what a, just a representation of what people are capable of. Um, 
just really amazing. And now uh, their one and a half year old calls Jerry Uncle Jerry because that kid would not be alive without Jerry. So I feel like we should have Jerry on the show, but we don't. We have Justin on the show and his perspective of the events, although having because he was unconscious for the first 30 days after the accident, um, his uh, account of the story is through other people's eyes. And then, of course, his own and what he learned and how his um, picture of life and success and his fears completely changed afterwards. So um, this is a conversation that will invite you to question your own thoughts and your beliefs and your fears if you're up for something like that. And I, I hope that you're listening to the Get Fucking Real show that you're up for something like that. So uh, what else do I want to let you know about him? He is, oh, you know what is cool about him? He is a master, he has a master certification in NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. He says that that really helped him um, get out of his fears of public speaking and hypnotherapy and neurofeedback. And he even talks about his woo-woo friends that helped him through his recovery. And of course, now he has a greater appreciation for all things that helped him heal. So without further ado, I would like you to meet Justin Womack. Justin Womack, welcome to the GFR show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited to be here. When I saw you, met you at the event that we were at, and you shared your story, and you're like, my car was underwater, upside down. And I mean, that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> all this my story, which, and which is funny because it's, there's so much there's so much to this story and your transformation. And I just assumed, right? Like if I assume when I meet somebody in the context where it's a room full of entrepreneurs, you know, we're doing, you know, revolutionary transformational work. I'm assuming that if someone gets up and shares like a huge, you know, wormhole like that, that there's going to be a story. So, so um, thanks for not disappointing me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like, yeah, every entrepreneur seems to have like the craziest origin stories ever. Um, but it, you know, they're all true though. <laughs> I, it's tr- it is, it is true. And I, I, I believe that the mission driven folks, like the purpose driven folks, the folks that are like, I'm fucking inspired. I must do this thing. And it's personal to them. Those are the ones that, um, I think are the juiciest before stories. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's dive in. And so we kind of, we're kind of uh, already um, hinted at the punchline briefly. There's so much to it. Um, so tell us like, what was your, your life like, and your sort of like, you know, how you thought about success and things like that, like before this sort of turning point incident you know, that happened? Yeah. Um, like going way back, I think my initial view of success was one of like traditional values, traditional employment, um, safety, things like that. And, and it, this wasn't necessarily my view because I think actually I grew up with a lot of entrepreneurial tendencies um, that just were not nourished at a young age. So um, like I, I, I kind of credit my mom on this side because I think she follows that pattern of kind of safety and security. Uh, my father too, in, in some ways um, does, but for whatever reason, like as a kid, I was like obsessed with like baseball cards and garage sales and things like that. Some of the things that I would associate kind of with the entrepreneur uh, spirit. Um, but I fell off that track. And um, so after graduating high school and going to college, um, I, Basically, uh, I graduated college and I took a job in, um, 
I took the highest paying job that off, that made an offer to me, and that was in the insurance industry. So I went from college to um, to the insurance industry, and I, I quickly discovered that um, even though they paid me the most in the short run, that was absolute misery for me. Like when I lose control over the ability to regulate my own schedule, um, I, I don't do well. <laughs> when I'm at the mercy of somebody else's like punch in, punch out time, it, it's, it doesn't, it, it's just something, something inside of me um, has a real issue with that. And it, 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 it quickly turned into something that was a massive burden for me. And like the, the best way I can describe working for somebody else on a long-term basis is that it was like soul deadening. Like yes. I felt like, <laughs> yes, it, it, I felt like um, my spirit was dying. And, and I, I remember so clearly how I quickly realized in employment that if I worked harder than the next person, uh, not only did I not, get rewarded and not make more money. Cause again, this, when I started this, this was not a commission job. This was a job job. Um, but not only did I not get commissioned and not get rewarded, I, I also kind of got punished because my coworkers would get mad at me for outperforming them and making them look bad. So like in the entrepreneur community where I came from, it was like a culture of do the least possible or uh, to, uh, to get by and not get noticed and just kind of float your way through. And that, I mean, it just didn't align with my expectations or values for myself. And it didn't align with what I wanted to accomplish in life. And, and I think when I took that job, I remember early on after the interview process where the, the vice president of the company came up to me and he, he said, well, we want to offer you the job, um, but is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? And when he <laughs> said that, <laughs> that was the first time I'd even considered that this was going to be the rest of my life. Um, because even when I was doing the, the interview after college, it was, it, it never seemed like it would, it would, it could possibly be permanent. Um, so those kind of things were like just eye opening to me that people would be at one job for an entire career span that you could stay within one industry. It, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't settle my need for variety as well. Cause I like to, I like to do different things. I like to challenge myself and, and being stuck in these burdensome, um, routines were, it was, it was brutal. I can just tell you that. And I felt like every day was a hamster wheel. And like, I felt like I was trapped on this thing and that there was no escape. So I, I just felt absolutely, I mean, I think the best way I could say is stuck or trapped. It, it was a, it was a internal feeling of misery. Yes. So, and so crushing is so vivid and so relatable. I'm sure to many of our listeners who <laughs> yes. are either in jobs or they are like me, a corporate escapee. Um, I totally relate to this. Do you, when you talk about um, that you are aware that when you don't have control of your own schedule, like it feels like a massive burden. Did you know that about yourself before? Like you kind of took your first job after college. Did you, did you know that about yourself? Not at that level. I mean, I, I kind of knew that. <laughs> I mean, I think intuitively I knew that a little bit. Um, but again, I had never taken a job for more than a few months at a time back then. So, um, you know, I was a sports player in, in high school, so I didn't have jobs in high school or I would have like summer jobs, but that was it. So I had never really taken anything on for longer than a couple months. And so I, I knew that 
you know, even in those periods of time, um, it, it got rough at, it got rough at times, but there was always a light at the end of the tunnel. So when we took away that light at the end of the tunnel, um, it, it really changed things and made it much more real for me. So it was a, it was a difference in that regard. Yeah, it's, it's, I find it fascinating when you transition from a job to an entrepreneur and you are in control, like you are your own boss. So if you have a shitty boss, you know, you're the ones to blame. And, and really becoming so vividly aware of how little control as people we have over our, how we spend our day, when we get up, when we eat, all the way through school, right? Through college, you know, through those traditional jobs. Like never do we learn how to sort of self-regulate, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, when I first, you know, I've been an, an entrepreneur for 20 years, but when I first became an entrepreneur, transitioned out of corporate, I was 28, I was young. Um, and I remember like thinking like, oh, almost to the point of like, oh, well, dress down days are Friday. So I'll wear my jeans <laughs> on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck am I thinking? Like I could wear whatever I want, do whatever I want, work whenever I want. But there was, it was like, I almost did not have the capacity to say, well, when do I want to get up? What are my peak work times? Like, when am I creative? When do I want to eat? How often do I, like, there was so much that I had never actually questioned about Mm -hmm. how I like managed myself. (laughs) And I think those questions are more relevant when you're doing something that doesn't like fully speak to your purpose and like your, your passions. So, uh, I mean, cause I can think of times when I could work, from home somewhat, uh, at least on a part-time basis. I never had a full-time job at, at home until I became an entrepreneur. Um, but even in, even in those days, like it was, it, it would be like, I almost had to like do my normal work routine to get into the mindset of wanting to do work. So I almost had to like go take a shower and put on like my, my formal, uh, clothing and kind of like prepare myself in that regard to get into that proper mentality. Um, but now that I'm doing something that I actually love, I, I don't feel that need as much anymore. And it's uh, so in the sense of like self-regulating, I feel like it's not as big of a, of an urgency as it was like when I was doing something I did not resonate with as much. Yeah, that's so true. I'm just having like these flashbacks of when I left corporate and, and like, this was back like when not everybody had personal computers, So what, you know, not everybody was doing their own personal email and like what a big transition it was. And even to this day, I, I feel like I'm, even stretching into a new level of freedom for myself and freeing myself from my to-do list and freeing myself from the, my strategic plans and freeing myself from the, this, this is the business model that's going to create leverage and like <laughs> all of these constructs because with investing in mentors and, and watching people who are quote unquote successful and you want what they want, it creates almost a new programming that can short circuit what our own preferences and natural tendencies are. Yeah. And, and I think like time management efficiency is something that I continue to work on and get better at. Um, but it's, yeah, it, that's, that's a daily challenge and something, and there's always room for improvement there. Um, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of personal growth coaches and uh, time management gurus and things like that. And so I, I do think it's important to like have some kind of a calendar. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a to-do list, but a, like some sort of a calendar to keep me on track. Um, but it's, it's always uh, other than like hard appointments, like phone appointments, like this one, right. For instance, uh, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a guideline basis. And it's like a reminder, like, like here are your long-term goals. Now let me have, let me block out time on each day to, uh, to put energy towards that, those kind of things. Yes. Yes. And that totally 
was my mindset up until probably a couple months ago. Um, and I would put the blocks in and I wouldn't do it. And then I would feel guilty. And now what I'm doing is I'm setting an intention for the week and trying to be more in the flow. So, uh, you know, so many of the stories on the show are around people sort of waking up to their mm -hmm. divine purpose, to the way that, you know, they want to work in the world, you know, to their, their awareness that my soul is being crushed. <laughs> so, um, and learning about ourselves along the way. And so, so, so you're in this insurance job. The person who offers you the job intimates it could be for the rest of your life because it probably, <laughs> probably was his rest of his life, right? Yeah. And you are realizing that even if you are a star, there's the downside and there isn't the upside of commission. And so anything else you want to share about before um, the, the, the tragedy? Well, I, I mean, just thinking back, it's like, I, I just felt like, there was no winning in corporate America. And, you know, I, I mean, maybe it was because I was young, but I always thought my bosses were not as smart as I was. <laughs> and, and maybe that was true, maybe not, because I was pretty young back then. Um, but it was, it, it was just frustrations because there was so little control I would have over, over some areas of the business. And it's like, I feel like I could do this so much better and I was not able to make any of those adjustments. And I had to, I had to eventually kind of like let that kind of part of me almost die out for a while. Um, this part of me that wants to improve things and make it better. And that's the kind of the entrepreneurial side. It had to like kind of die out and, and lose that voice because it wasn't listened to. It wasn't nurtured over at, at corporate America. So, it, I mean, that's, that's the other thing I think that was like rough for me. It, it was that I wasn't being heard when I thought I had good ideas. I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I mean, again, I, I, not only was I not rewarded for, uh, for overperforming, but I was chastised by my coworkers for making them feel bad and look bad. Yeah. Well, so, there's, a, there's a new kid. I don't know how old your kids are, but there's a new expression that teenagers are using. My, my daughter's 13. And, uh, and somebody said this to her as an insult. They called her a tryhard. <laughs> So you were a tryhard back then, mm -hmm. Justin. <laughs> yes, yes, I was a tryhard. I <laughs> I overworked. I was I was trying to be a top performer, and I shouldn't have apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so funny. Like we were laughing. It's like that's an insult. Just like I know, isn't that ridiculous? You know, and she's you know, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Um, yeah. So okay, so take us to um, the day that everything changed for you. Well, there's a, there's a couple days. Um, okay, all right. First, first and foremost, before uh, before I had this major transition in my in my life and everything else, I I, I, I did reach a point where um, where there wasn't necessarily like a, a single incident that that actually got me to leave the insurance industry. So I actually stepped away from the insurance industry about a year before my car accident, which we'll get into here shortly. Um, and I I left because I was getting depressed. Um, it was creating a strain on my relationship at home with my, uh, with my now wife, girlfriend at the time. And it was, uh, and like, I, I was just was so absolutely down and out that like, I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I just reached this like bottom uh, mentally. And so what I did was I, I put in my two weeks, I left with, without much of a plan. I had a little bit of savings and I went out like deciding that I'm going to give myself like two or three months to go figure out what my true passion is and, uh, and make something else happen. Wow. That's so courageous. It was, and it was, it was very hard for me because um, I'm naturally introverted and just like, I, uh, I have a 
historically, I avoid, I've avoided conflicts and confrontations. So even, even something as minuscule as like telling your boss that you're leaving was like a confrontation in my mind. So even that was a challenging conversation for me to have. Um, so there's been, yeah, there's been so much like personal growth work that I've done like over time now that it's like, it's funny to look back at some of these things that were challenges for me then that are not now, but reflect back. <laughs> um, how did you, how did you get to the place where you were able to do that? I mean, especially when, when you're feeling depressed, it's sort of hard to like, you know, actually like motivate yourself to, you know, to make a change like that. You know, was it because, you know, your, you did, the relationship was being threatened or like, what, what was it that actually finally got you to do that, especially with no plan? Yeah, it was, it was a combination of the relationship being threatened and I'd actually started going to therapy sessions. So um, I, had, I had been seeing people about it and it was, uh, I found some supports and found enough courage to, to kind of make that leap. Was going, starting to go to therapy a leap for you? It was a leap for me because it was the first time I'd really asked for help, I would say, in any kind of regard personally, um, especially on the side of like mental health and, and growth and wellness. So it, that just the, the act of kind of saying that, okay, I can't do this on my own. I'm going to need some extra help was uh, that was a bit of a leap for me because it was the first time I kind of was able to um, allow, allow myself to again, like welcome in outside advice and like really take it in on a deep level. And this kind of proceeded into where I really dove into the coaching business shortly thereafter this. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, it's been really beautiful to be in conversation with men on this show and really have them share about how fucking hard it is to ask for help. I'm mm-hmm. um, not that it's super easy for women, but it just seems to be inherently harder for men. There's just t- more messages around, you know, being yeah. tough and all that shit. Um, episode 13 is with a gentleman named Scott Sargent, who um, was an Olympic athlete and talks about um, dealing with su- su- suicidal thoughts. And, and, you know, and he just had his coaches being like, there's no room, like you cannot, there's no room for asking for help. Like there, you know, and he had all these people around him, like swarming around him and he just felt completely, completely alone. So I'm glad yeah. that, I mean, I feel like, you know, you saved yourself by going to therapy and it seems so fucking simple to go to therapy. But um, I remember the first time that I called a therapist, it just felt like it, I, I don't know why it just, it just felt like, such a big deal. And um, I'm hoping that nowadays it's becoming more acceptable. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I mean, you, you, it could have gone away different. Right? Yeah, I think it is becoming more acceptable. And I do think that men do have a lot of stigmas around the whole therapy thing, because it's just like your traditional masculinity, um, you know, walk it off, handle it yourself. You know, I, I have a dad that was very much uh, of that mindset. So, you know, injure yourself, walk it off. Uh, You don't know how to do something, go figure it out. (laughs) Uh, Tough love kind of, uh, tough love kind of a father in some regards there. So, and somebody that um, to this day, I don't know that he would ever be willing to go, I don't, to go see a therapist like that because I don't know that it would meld with, you know, the way he sees himself and his identity. And, but it's, it's been interesting because I've seen it from both sides because someone like me that asked for help, got help, and then uh, made a big transition. At least that was the start of it. There was another piece to this that we'll get to. Um, it, you know, it made all the difference in the world. And then there's somebody else that, you know, I can think of that 
had major issue, chose not to get help, and then died as a result. Yeah. And, um, and, and so it, it happens both ways, but it's like the, the stubbornness, if you let the stubbornness um, take over, it could kill you. I mean, it's that, it's that serious. Sometimes it can be a matter of life and death by, for just asking help and reaching out your hand. Yes, I like that. The stubbornness can kill you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what happens next? So you, le- you leave, you get up the courage to leave and give yourself space to like yeah. find your purpose. <laughs> so my first, my first gig after was I got a job in, the, in Hollywood in the movie industry doing a, as a production assistant. And I won't go into detail on this because I don't have time, but uh, it was, I found out quickly that just because I love movies does not equate to loving <laughs> working on the movie industry. <laughs> that, but you know what? But awesome that you like tried it, right? Because you probably mm-hmm. had sort of this, you know, oh, you know, this is going to be the thing. And- yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I thought, I'm like, okay, this is it. Like, I love movies. I want to go work on movies. And the, <laughs> I worked on a movie. We had the A-list stars, Corey Feldman and Eric Roberts in the movie. <laughs> and <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was interesting. It was, co- it was a cool experience in some regards, but it was also like, I mean, this was like ridiculous how many hours we worked and how like we were, you know, Probably very illegally paid, but you know, it was, it, we got, <laughs> we got taken care of. Um, <laughs> so this, this, uh, so this bought me a little bit more time with my, with my journey. But then um, I, I ended up going to my first seminar. And, and since like, like I'd say this goes, this goes back to early in my life. I was always attracted to Tony Robbins and like his teachings and things like that. And I had, I had skimmed through his material. I'd never really dove in that deeply, but I had been attracted and I was familiar with the concept of NLP. So when I, when I, came, uh, aware, when I became aware of an NLP seminar that was happening in Orange County, um, I jumped on it. And this was actually Matt Browning, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him. Yeah. Um, so he was the first, that was the first time I'd ever attended a, a live um, seminar event. And I, I went down to his event and I, I think it was the first time I had really experienced something where I'm like, wow, this is, this is like special. Something special is happening in the rooms here where there are just, this is like kind of my tribe of people um, that are seeking personal development, seeking personal growth, wanting to do better for themselves in business and in life. And at that event, there was actually, um, there were a few guest speakers there. I think I bought, I bought like everything you could buy at my first seminar. So I bought, you know, the big <laughs> program. I bought all the guest speaker packages. I bought everything. Um, but what was, what was actually really crazy was that after, I think it was within like three months of this, uh, I got an opportunity to work on the back end of um, one of the guest speakers that was at that event, offered me a chance to work on the back end of his business. And so I, I came in and was thrown into the mix with uh, really one other full-time guy, one other part-time person uh, to run the back end of a seven-figure seminar business. And it was, uh, it was challenging, it was exciting, and I jumped on the opportunity instantly. Um, and, and that kind of, uh, that's what took me into this kind of area where I started really developing my marketing skills, developing my copywriting, working on back end of email marketing, getting familiar with softwares like Infusionsoft and MailChimp and all these different, <laughs> all these different automation platforms. And um, as this, so I, I, I was there and, and as this was happening, I, while I was, uh, I felt like, again, I was like in the right place. I still didn't have control over my schedule. I still wasn't quite at the level I wanted to be, and I still wasn't fully happy. There were areas where I was uh, absolutely thriving, and then there were areas that were in uh, that were missing. But while this was happening, I, I experienced what has been since described to me as a, a forced soul redirection. <laughs> oh, I like. Um, I need an acronym. So, 
yes, yes, yes. I had a, <laughs> at that time, uh, when I was involved in the seminar business, I was, in, I was uh, around a lot of the woo-woo and the, uh, around a lot of these health Gotta coaches love those and, <laughs> and practitioners. So, um, yeah, that, that came from one of them after the fact, but it, yeah. So, so during this time, I, I remember it was like a, it was a Sunday and I was being kind of asked to come in on my day off. And I, you know, I hadn't like, it was unexpected. I hadn't been sleeping. I was exhausted. Um, you know, we were working, we had just come, I think we had just finished like a five day event, which was just, if you've ever been involved in the back end of a five day event, it is, it is rough. Exhausting. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, and so I the back end and the front end, and it's both exhausting. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but it was interesting. I mean, I went out one day, and you know, I really woke up a month later in a hospital bed, um, finding out that I had been in a uh, been in a major car accident. So, to give you a, a, a kind of a brief explanation here, I mean, uh, my I lost control of my vehicle. I went over the side of a like creek bed, bridge, whatever you want to call it. Um, my car landed vertically, airbags deployed and knocked me unconscious. And then I, and then my car, instead of landing on its feet, landed on its back, but it landed upside down underwater in the creek bed, which was not only uh, a creek bed, but it was like a dirty water creek bed with like a sewage runoff nearby. And, um, and it was, so it was filthy, filthy water. Oh my God. So, I, I essentially would was on a path where I was going to die. And for, I mean, if you want to talk about like synchronicities and fate. Yes, please. Um, yes. There, so somehow, some way there was a, a witness that saw this, that actually took action, uh, jumped out of their car. Well, I guess they were in the passenger seat with his, he was with his wife. He jumped out of his car, dove in like apparently without even thinking and was able to get me out of the vehicle and bring me to shore where, um, where there was also a, like it was an off duty lifeguard or, or fireman or something. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> I was, I was unconscious. So I don't know all the details. I know I've heard the stories that was also there that helped to do CPR to keep me alive uh, until the ambulance could get there. And so, it, I mean, it's, it was pretty intense. And what's really crazy is I, I've talked to the guy that, that pulled me out and saved me. Um, you know, I have a bit of a relationship with him and we, we, I, uh, we try to see him, you know, once, uh, once a year if possible and uh, try to stay, keep that connection alive. But he, he tells the story that, you know, he dove in after the car. He couldn't, he got the car door open, no problem, which is amazing in, in and of itself that the car wasn't locked and it might be because the airbags deployed and it unlocked itself. I don't, I don't even know to this day how it was unlocked. Um, wow. wow. But he couldn't get me out of the seatbelt. So with the, with the airbags deployed and the seatbelt, he couldn't get me out. And so he came up and there were a few other people on the, on the shoreline uh, or the sideline. And he asked if anyone had a knife. Um, nobody did. So he describes it as he said that he was so pressured and traumatized in that moment because he knew that he was going to have to dive back down. And if he didn't pull me out that time, like there's no way I could survive. And so for me to have somebody feel that way um, and, and like to have that person be the person that witnessed this is like, completely unbelievable because <laughs> there's probably like one percent of the population would be able to even do that if that and this guy is about my height i'm six foot five at the time of the accident i was probably 250 pounds 260 maybe uh, and this guy was big enough he was he was like six four six five uh, a big guy able to you know able to 
be able to get me out as well uh, from the size standpoint. So there's just so many things that had to go right um, for me to survive something that went very wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened when he went back down? <laughs> uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. So he, uh, so he went back, he went back down and this is, this is what he's told me now. He said that he does not remember a thing. He said he basically blacked out. Um, but when his next memory is that he came up, he had me and, uh, and then there were people, you know, guiding him back to the shore to get me over there to help, uh, to help do CPR. So to this day, he says he does not remember a thing. He doesn't know how he did it. He just went down and he did it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's so, yeah, there's so many like crazy elements of the, of the whole story. Wow. Um, but this was only the beginning of my journey and, and, you know, had it been. What's normal, his name? Let's give him a shout out. His name is Jerry. Jerry. Oh yes. my God, man. Wow. <laughs> Fucking angel from God, Jerry. Yes. Yes, he really is. And his wife as well. So Katie as well. So. Jerry and Katie. <laughs> yeah. Right. So she wasn't like, what the hell are you doing, dude? Yeah, no, she didn't stop him. She could have because she was driving the car. She could have stopped him and like, no, don't, don't risk, you know, why are you risking your life? Uh, wow. I talked to her as well. And she said, that's just, that's just Jerry. That's just who he is. Does he have, did he have any like rescue type military, anything that like, predisposed him to like doing that something like that not um not directly just wow. like just the mentality and the type of person he is so right that's a whole like another podcast to yeah and podcast he was actually he was actually awarded uh, i don't remember the name of the award but he was he was given some kind of citizens award for his actions um Good. because of, of because of what he did too which i think wow. is amazing so that's amazing but again this was only the start of my journey because uh i had ingested this dirty, dirty water. And like, had it been clean water, it would have been like a near drowning experience. And I, I probably, you know, wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But having ingested dirty water and aspirated it into my lungs, I had, um, I had developed what's called, I, I had quickly developed ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, where my lungs were basically hardening to cardboard. And I had what's called aspergillus pneumonia, where uh, aspergillus is a type of fungus that's pretty common that's harmless in small uh, doses or whatever you want to call it, small, uh, small amounts. But when it's actually growing on your lungs, it's, uh, it's very, very, very dangerous. And so I had, I had a big uphill battle where it, it, the doctors described it basically that my lungs were as sick as they could possibly be. I was not expected to survive the night. And, um, and things got, things were bad for quite a while before they got better. So, I mean, even, even going further with the um, amazing elements that let me survive this thing, like I had to be put into what's called a rotaprone bed, which is a, a specialized bed that they happen to have at this hospital, which they don't have in many hospitals. It, I think the maximum height was like six foot five or six foot six. And I like cleared it by like a quarter of an inch apparently otherwise they wouldn't be able to use it oh my gosh. and it's it's a it's something that's so delicate that like it's i don't think this i think they said that this one had never been used before because it's so rare that somebody is sick enough to need it but healthy enough to survive being moved into it so and that's how that's how serious it got so this is a bed where they strap you in and they're basically just rotating you to to move the sediment through my lungs on a consistent basis wow and so, it, it, I mean, <laughs> it, it was a crazy, crazy experience. Um, I mean, I, I was in a medical coma for 30 days, uh, yeah, so which you, you don't remember. And like you, like you literally like had well, some, I, yeah. a, a memory of some losing control of your car. And then a month later you wake up. Yes. So I, I had a, um, I was put into a medical induced coma. And so 
the, the third day I was in the hospital, my lungs collapsed. Um, I went into multiple organ failure. They brought the priest in to provide, you know, last rites basically. And, um, and my, my leg turned purple and they, they told my father that, you know, is life over limbs. So they, they had entered the operating room with the expectation that at the very least I was going to, they're going to amputate my leg. And somehow, um, again, like unconscious for all this. So I don't know all the details, but somehow I came out of that. Uh, the, the surgery was a success. My, my somehow my like leg had regained uh, blood flow and, and I, you know, I can't, I, I was able to come out of that without, uh, without the consequences of losing a limb or losing my life. Wow. And, and so the rest of that journey, you know, I, I this whole time I was on a, uh, a ventilator. So I was being kept on life support, being kept alive. Um, they did a thoracotomy surgery where they had to actually cut my, open my chest and scrape the fungus off my lungs, which then actually made a huge improvement. And, um, and then when they finally took me off of the, uh, off of the medically induced coma drugs, uh, they didn't know if I'd have brain function too, because I'd been underwater for any, uh, like the reports were like anywhere from three to five minutes. Right. So your whole family is like for 30 days in this, like uh, just unbelievable roller coaster and really still not knowing when you wake up, if you're even going to be you. Exactly. Yeah. And like my, my wife, um, who was my girlfriend at the time, who stood by me that entire time and like left her job to actually stay um, near the hospital and visit like every day for multiple months. Um, she was just saying like, my, yeah, it was, it was hard because the, the general sentiment was pretty negative that uh, even though I had survived as far as I had, the, the general sen- sentiment that my faculties would be like considered normal were, were pretty low. So, you know, when I, when I did come to and, uh, and I guess they had initially, they had been given commands like, move your thumb up or something. And so I, I don't even, I don't even remember this part because I was still coming off the drugs at this point. Um, but I guess the first time that I responded to that was like a huge weight off uh, of my family's shoulders because they knew at least this part of the journey. Okay. Th- there's going to be hope now. It was like the first time that I kind of restored like a real, a real sense of hope. I think my wife never lo- lost that, but I think my mom and dad may have for a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. And, you know, and Scott, um, again, episode 13 talks about, cause he woke up in the hospital paralyzed from the ne- neck down. And he talked about how, how, you know, yeah, he was just told like, you're not going to walk again. You're paralyzed. And like, he, he just like refused. He's like, no, no, that's not yeah. my reality. That's not my truth. And how, pervasive it is to be in that setting where people that you know are supposed to know what they talk about are telling you how things are going to go and so your wife sounds like a fucking amazing woman to be able to hold space for possibility you know in that type of setting you know um which of course is an awesome metaphor for our life (laughs) and our life as an entrepreneur and all the other ways that we are you know in the situation where people tell us there's a certain truth or reality and we say no yeah, <laughs> or can say no. Yeah. My, my wife was so cool. I mean, in this whole situation that she, she would play like meditation music while I was in a coma and she would put it in my ear and she would like whisper affirmations. And so like the things that she did were just amazing. And, wow. uh, and I, I and I, yeah. And so like the doctors would basically, I, I think she said that they told her like this wouldn't have an impact, but she, disregarded it, did it anyway. And I'm very grateful for that. 
um, while I was in the hospital, I was also visited by a couple of these uh, woo-woo uh, friends of mine that I had developed. <laughs> nice. So I had, it's funny because uh, I guess Everybody I- Everybody needs some real good woo-woo friends. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I had a couple, I had a couple people come by, but one, one of them was uh, this, uh, this lady, Jane, who um, I had made a connection with and she, she actually came into the room and performed Reiki on me while I was in my coma. And what was interesting, it, it absolutely freaked my mom out because apparently my vitals like went nuts while she was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of cool. It's like, uh, I like this proof of, uh, proof of energy work in action right there for you, <laughs> watching the vitals yeah. like it absolutely spiked. Wow. But I, I don't want to fall too far off track here. Um, I mean, this is all on track. That's what, yeah, this, okay. this is what the show is all about, right? Because it is all on track. It is all on purpose. Like that, this whole experience and all the different elements, like seeing, you know, this guy, Jerry and what, and like your, like what humanity is capable of. And like, you know, like all mm -hmm. of these parts of this experience for you have you have coalesced into the person you are now, the work you're doing now, the space you're holding now for your clients. Like it all, it all matters. Your relationship with your wife. Like, you know, when I work closely with clients and there is something that's not in alignment with their primary relationship, the person that they're living with, like it impacts their mission. They may be in denial, but it is impacting or slowing down their neck, you know, their, their evolution. So um, yeah, all relevant, Justin. <laughs> and I think, I think before this, my, you know, my mind had gotten occasionally into dark places where I didn't have as much faith in humanity and things like that. And I felt like people weren't naturally, naturally good necessarily. So, you know, this experience actually, you know, shifted my perspective on that a lot. <laughs> I mean, dramatically, obviously, yeah. because there was so much good that came out. And so many people that came to my support and people that I hadn't talked to for years, like, uh, like high school people that I hadn't seen since high school that were like uh, coming, they were like offering support through uh, social media where my friends started to go fund me and they were donating money to that. And, um, and then like, you know, close friends that would actually fly out and visit me. And it was, I mean, it was just pretty incredible to see that level of support. And even my family like would start prayer circles and things like that to help, um, around my cause and it's just like that was emotional for me to see like the level of uh, that people were willing to come to bat for me and it also made me reflect a bit like how would I react in the same spot am I am I in a spot where I'm going to actually reciprocate this because I, I like look how important it was for me and like look how like it, it gave me new perspective on the importance of doing that too so it's uh it's something that I think it's easy to take for granted and it's easy to say no for uh, because it's inconvenient to sometimes support someone else, but it means so much. I mean, it meant, it meant the world to me. Thank you um, for that. Yeah. I, yeah. I could use that reminder too, I think. Yeah. And, and so my, my journey was still uphill in a lot of ways. I, I still, I still had to get off my ventilator and basically train my body back to breathe again. And I moved from ventilator to trach and well, um, so after waking up in the hospital bed 30 days in, I, I still had another 30 days where I was in ICU. Um, I, I got, I was shifted to a, a trach and I couldn't talk because I had a trach in, which I have a nice scar right there for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I, I, you know, I spent 24 hours a day in a hospital bed where I, I couldn't move other than being shifted to avoid um, bed sores. And and eventually a few weeks in, they started to bring the, P the physical therapist in to, to stand me up like once a day. And, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But, uh, 
but this gave me, because I was like just basically immobile and, and stuck, it, like every day felt like a week to me. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. Like every day was like a week, um, a week's length. And it, it gave me like time slowed down so much during that period, <laughs> but it gave me a lot of time to reflect. And uh, it gave me a lot of time to think about, okay, like if I come out of this with, with function and the ability to do things differently, like how do I want to, how do I want chapter two of my life to look or whatever you want to call it chapter, whatever chapter it is. Um, the next chapter, <laughs> how do I want that of my life to look like? And, and so there were a few things that I knew I wanted to do. I mean, so this uh, one, I knew I wanted to get married to uh, my girlfriend at the time that was supporting me. And that was, uh, that was uh, major. She passed uh, the test. She passed the test. Yes. <laughs> I think I had several people tell me like, you better marry her now. <laughs> um, I, I knew that I wanted to do my own thing. And I, and I knew how important it was. I, I still didn't know how I was going to exactly formulate and how it was going to happen, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, and I knew that I needed to show up in a bigger way. And, um, and so like, those are like, those are like the key elements I think I took away from it. And that, and it kind of, I, I think it helped to take away my fear. The accident took away my fears and, um, and, and took away some of the limiting beliefs around like what I couldn't do. So, because this was such like a powerful metaphor, I mean, if you think of it as, as a metaphor, it was such a powerful metaphor for like the things that are possible to overcome in life, um, even though it was real, <laughs> but right. it's, uh, uh, it, it, it all, you know, it, it provided me with like the, that, 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 you know, if you could survive that, you could survive whatever risk, perceived risk there was to becoming an entrepreneur. Exactly. So it, it was a major, it was a major shift for me and, um, and soon, you know, the opportunity came for me to even talk about my story. And so the first time I ever shared my story was after leaving the hospital. Um, there, there's an organization that would, that allowed my, um, my family to stay nearby at like at very low prices. So um, they're basically like a long-term, uh, long-term residential center for family members of critically ill patients. And so I had an opportunity to participate in a fundraiser for them and to, uh, and to speak on stage a year after this. Wow. And that was, and so that was one of my first real, uh, I would say that's one of my first real public speaking type of gigs, <laughs> even though it was unpaid, it was volunteer. Um, oh, no, it counts. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it, it counted. Uh, there were, there was a, we had like two, uh, we had uh, Bill Walton from the, uh, from the front basketball uh, hall of fame, like it was in attendance. Cause he had been, uh, he had uh, been associated with this uh, charity as well. And so uh, I had a, I had a powerful audience and it was, uh, and I, I moved a lot of people to the story and it was, uh, it was cool to see the power that um, my story could have on other people. And so that was, uh, that kind of, that, that helped to identify that. I, I knew that public speaking needed to be a bigger part of my, uh, of my journey as well. And, and so, like coming out of the, uh, so again, like uh, my hospital stay, we could go into more details. Eventually I got out. Um, I, there was still, there was still outpatient. I, I was on antifungal medications. I had to go to the cancer centers for IV drips uh, daily for uh, multiple months, even after I got out of the hospital um, to get, to get the fungus out of my lungs. And, um, and there, there was other medical complications that lasted for a while. Uh, but I mean, from a, from a potential, uh, from a potential outcome standpoint, like, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better outcome than what I got. Wow. So my mental faculties are intact. 
Um, I'm able to move my body. My lungs aren't what they used to be because I had, they were very sick and there was some, you know, there was some permanent damage done, but like I get the opportunity to continue on and I get the opportunity to, to do these things and do these things differently. And so I think one of the first kind of actions that I, uh, I took is I actually reconnected with the, uh, the NLP training after getting out of this. And I, um, and I took the NLP public speaking course and that also made a major impact on my life, I would say. And this is after the accident. So I had to <laughs> kind of get the permission to get over the fears and do it. And um, I just felt like really empowered after kind of doing this like immersive public speaking workshop and kind of getting such good positive feedback and, and like having people, you know, feel the impact of, of, what, uh, of my story and what, um, what I was able to bring. And so now, I, I mean, I, I tell people now that I think public speaking is the most important skill for all of business, period, because everything comes down to public speaking. And that's, I mean, whether you're doing a podcast, um, it's, you know, it's in a, in a sense, you're public speaking. Whether you're writing a book, I, I argue that writing a book is a vehicle to get more public speaking gigs. <laughs> um, or like if you're networking at your live events, like my experience has been that when I network at live events, I, I have the most success when I am volunteering to speak or if I, even at the local chamber, like there's opportunities usually to lead your own workshops. So like when I get clients from the chamber, it's because I'm leading workshops or I'm speaking at events. It's not because I'm networking and passing out business cards. So uh, like to me, public speaking has become like the foundation of my business. And I think that's one of the, the cornerstones of the lessons I learned along this journey. Beautiful. And you are a visibility expert now in the area of marketing and, and, you were sharing with me earlier that before the accident, like being seen or being visible was something that was um, a huge like stressor for you. And yeah. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, the interviews are short, so it's tough to get into everything. Um, well, we but, can, how about we, we, we can sort of uh, well, wrap yeah. it up with, with this because um I know this, this, I could just talk to you all day. It's so, it's so amazing. Well, well I think what I want to share is yeah, um, <laughs> some, a real quick little bit of backstory and get into that. It, it's, okay. I, I've always been an introvert and I, I was somebody that was um, largely, depending on where you saw me, whether I was in public or private, you, like if you saw me in public and you didn't know me, you'd call me shy. If you knew me in public, you, you might not have that interpretation because I, I could be pretty outgoing. So I was an introvert that was resenting being an introvert. I was, a, I was an introvert that resented being shy. And it made me, because like for me, shyness was like a physiological reaction. Like I actually like had, you know, heart fluttering, things like that, that would create this, uh, where it was hard for me to communicate normally. Um, and so I, I think I, I say that because it was, it was really challenging for me to, um, to put myself out there because I had this natural shyness and I felt like, in, in groups of people, I couldn't communicate my real self, my authentic self to them. Um, and that I would be playing like a character and I would always dole down my personality uh, because out of some subconscious, I would call it a subconscious um, desire to be accepted. So I, I would, I would dole down the elements of my personality that made me me and try to be as generic as possible because that's how I knew I, you know, I, I probably comes down to like fear of being exiled from your tribe um, fear of being exiled from people. And, and so I, I, I always had this tendency to kind of um, 
fall into patterns that were safe and would preserve my, what I thought would preserve my social status. And, and ultimately it was hurting me emotionally and it was harming me. And so like when I told you earlier, it was that like, even on things like social media early on, I, I was afraid to even put a photo out there because I was, you know, I had this, these fears of um, being in public and I had these fears of how people perceived me and I had uh, fears of criticism. And, and so, so I, I would use like pseudonyms and, and create accounts and try to hide behind them. And because not because I wanted to be like a Facebook stalker, but because I wanted to see, uh, I, I wanted to be involved, but I was afraid to attach my name to it. Yeah. So uh, like I remember even, you know, like testing it out and like creating like an account and like posting like motivational things to see what kind of following I could get, <laughs> but like terrified to put my name to it. And it was funny because I never really got negative feedback from it, but it still didn't necessarily translate to me putting my face to it. Um, so I, I guess the, like the accident coupled with years of therapy and years of personal growth work and like all this stuff kind of accumulating over time has finally kind of given me the, the chance to, to just go for it and put myself out there and, you know, let people know a little bit more about who I really am. And the results have been kind of, you know, shocking in that they're, people tend to accept more than they reject. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's like, I just remember like having all these things in my mind, like even when I started a business, I was afraid to tell some people that I was going to start a business um, because I had like these fears of like how people would react, like even family members would react to my mind. And when I, when I decided, when I went for it and I did it and I, and I told people, it was like they barely even said anything. It was like they they're like, oh, that's a great idea. Or they, it was like it was like well, positive just happy feedback. You're fucking alive, Justin. So they're gonna they're, at that point. That, that too, that too. But but it was just it, it was just so it was just so interesting to me because I had built these things up to be like these giant mountains in my mind, and when I finally overcame them, it was like, whoa, these were actually like nothing. These were this was like this was like nothing. So it, it's uh, it was fascinating to me so to kind of reveal how many of my boundaries and barriers were self-imposed and completely of my own making. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so this kind of gets into where I, what I'm doing now is uh, I am a, into the digital marketing space and visibility is one of the things I talk about. I, um, I, I essentially talk, especially about like authority and how as a business, Visibility is key, um, but also perception and how people perceive you is key as well. So there's some kind of hacks or tricks to kind of establishing fast credibility and authority in your business. And those are some of the things that I'm teaching right now. And just to give like a, a brief kind of couple of these, it, it's, it's really the things I talked about with the, with the realm of public speaking. It's, it's putting yourself out there, but it's, uh, it's becoming a leader um, and it's becoming, and sometimes it's not necessarily that you're, um, it's a, a leader by perception. So there's perceptual authority that's created by things like starting a podcast. Like anybody could start a podcast and the, when you do it, the way that you're looked at shifts in somebody's mind, because now you're a leader leading your own podcast. You've developed something, you are an authority on a certain subject matter. If you write a book, you become, a, you become an authority on a subject by, being, by virtue of becoming an author. And it's easier than ever for people to get published and write a book now. So there are, there are paths to, to kind of adding this prestige to your name that didn't exist before. 
Um, even things like leading a Facebook group. I mean, that even has a sense of perceptual authority that you're the, at the head of that group. And so these are, these are kind of like hardwired indicators of how people will value us and how they look at us. And if we, if we set ourselves up to be perceived as an authority before we move in and make an offer and a sale, we're in a much better position um, to get their attention and to get them to really listen to our offer than if we do not do that. And in fact, like the, the chances that you're able to influence and impact someone to the point of making a sale are pretty slim if, they, if they're not seeing you as an established authority. So this is uh, one of the key elements of kind of influence and one of the key elements of, of business in my, uh, in my mind, in my opinion. I love everything you shared. And I, you know, I've said this multiple times on this show that I am listening to you in a different way because of the conversation we've had prior to this. I know that you used to not perceive yourself to be an authority. I know that you have had challenges being visible. I know that you have had a huge shift in your perception of you know, how, what people think of you and you've pushed through fears around your confidence. And you know, like all of those things, Justin, have me Here's something that could just be, oh, great, here's more marketing tips, right? Like, you know, to go, yes, yes, there is a perception of authority um, and, and these are the things that I could do to put myself out there in a bigger way. I need to push myself outside my comfort zone, just like Justin did, you <laughs> know, um, with or without having a harrowing experience, you know, like yeah. you did. So I really appreciate, you know, all that you're bringing to the game that you're playing now. And if you're an introvert, there's ways of easing yourself into it. Cause like you can write a book again, that's easier than, than ever with uh, with Amazon create space and things like that. And you can do a podcast if you're afraid of being on video, because uh, you know, podcasts like this can be a mix of video and audio, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to, it could be just audio only. And some people are, sometimes that makes the difference for people. And if that's you, like, don't miss the opportunity to get on the podcast boat because I think there's a, I think there's a huge emerging industry behind it and there's a, it's a great time to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. It really, really is. It really is. So is there a final lesson that you learned from your experience that you want to leave with our listeners? I guess a couple, a couple things I'll leave you with. Uh, I, I found that the, the importance of, um, of not only kind of following a passion, but also taking fast action and, and implementing concepts with speed. I, I find that to be really important because I, I think, I, and I wish I had, you know, in some regards I look back and it's like, okay, I had to do this journey to get to where I am now. In other regards, I look back and I'm like, well, I really wish I had found my passion sooner. <laughs> right. And so if I'm talking to somebody that's kind of getting started, it's, um, I think that the lessons that I've really learned are that in, in business, one of the biggest indicators of success is how fast you're willing to implement new actions that you learn. And, um, and my one experience that I'm just going to gloss over real quick here is because uh, also after this journey, I've become a podcast host of my own. Uh, I'm a host of a co-host of a show called Marketing Geeks. And we've now uh, crossed over 200,000 downloads. Um, we have, uh, we've had people on the show like Pat Flynn and like big names like John Lee Dumas and um, Dan Locke and like people, well-known people in the industry. And it's something that I, I dove into without knowing a thing really about podcasting. I just kind of put myself into it, learned it as I went along, uh, but I took fast action and I course corrected along the way. 
imperfect action is so much better than never taking action or version one is better than version none. I've heard many times. I like that. I like <laughs> <Yes>. that one. <laughs> so like if you have a goal, that's really a passion of yours, like go do it and don't worry about it being perfect because in some regards, I've had it described that perfection is not the highest standard you can hold for yourself. It's actually one of the lowest standards you can hold because it leads to never taking action. I like that too. Awesome. And again, uh, more profound coming from somebody who, who, you know, who almost wasn't here. So, um, so thank you, Justin. It's been a delight and yeah, I'm changed because of this conversation. I know many other people will be as well. Cool. Well, thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. You're welcome. I hope this show has left you with a renewed faith in humanity like it did me. Wow. To keep in touch with Justin, we have put a link in our show notes to his authority building checklist, and he's an awesome um, digital marketing specialist. You can keep in touch with him in all of the social media places, also links in the show notes. And um, something that he wanted me to make sure that I shared was his favorite GFR commandment. We didn't get you a chance to cover it on the show, then we talk about it afterwards. His favorite GFR commandment is number three, don't worry about being normal, proper, or polite. And when I tell you why it resonates with him, you're going to totally get it now that you've heard the interview. He said, this resonates with me the most right now because I'm trying to stay out of my own head and create content that fits me and my brand without considering how I think people will respond to it. That's so awesome to hear how he is applying this commandment to his marketing. And of course, we got to hear how he... Um, often was worried about what people thought and had and hid parts of himself and felt very inauthentic and just like a watered down version of himself. And so how beautiful to hear him owning his individual voice in his marketing. And I love, I love how commandment number three contributes to an awareness around not living fully in full color in our marketing. If you don't have your own copy of the GFR Commandments, you need to go do that. If you're going to be sticking around here, which I hope you will, you need to go to gfr.life forward slash 12C and read those confession questions for each commandment and see which one is the one that's up for you right now. The cool thing about them is there's 12, but we really only recommend working on one at a time. And so have fun with that. See which one is your favorite. And stick around with us after the show by being a part of our GFR Squad membership community, and you'll get to hear Justin talk about his marketing tips for introverts. All right, y'all, don't miss an episode. Make sure you've subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify, wherever you like to hang out and listen, so that we can be on this GFR journey together. Bye-bye, y'all.